This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. By the way, uh, if you saw me take a picture of you, I sent it to her and I said, uh, he wants to be in your movie. And Debbie said, it's done. You're in the movie. So you're in her movie. So, so I got that done for you. So there's one good thing for you out of this conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're uh, recording this after our actual podcast. So we talked today with Kevin McGee from Anderson Brewing. Um, they make some amazing stuff. And we just wanted to have a chat with them and talk about kind of what they're doing, where they've been, where they're going, and uh, enjoying some of their uh, bourbon barrel stouts and talk about that process. So this is uh, episode... Eight? Episode eight? I think. <laughs> Something like that? Yeah. So there you go. Enjoy the podcast, guys. We had a really good time. And, yeah, it was uh, good. Kevin's an awesome dude. So, Yeah, enjoy. I don't really have anything else to add to that. We'll, uh, it is a remote podcast, so... Yeah, there is some buffering issues, but uh, as to be expected, it's, um, you know, it's over the internet, so... Yeah, but it was very good, very insightful. A lot of uh, parallels to be drawn between, I think, the whiskey world and the beer world. And, very similar. Uh, Maybe even a little bit of a crossover in the future. Yeah, there could be something coming. So enjoy, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to the next episode. Today, we're chatting with Kevin from Anderson Valley Brewing. Uh, thanks for doing this with us, Kevin. Yeah, no problem. Good to be here. So every episode that we start, we always say that the episode's powered by instead of sponsored by. Uh, and this episode, we're going to say it's powered by Anderson Valley, but specifically the bourbon barrel stout that you guys make with the wild turkey barrels. And uh, oh, nice. we'll get into how I found this. So we're going to, we haven't tried it yet. So we've, I have them poured, which took a good 15 minutes to do. And, <laughs> and uh, we'll give it a smell and a taste and we'll, and we'll go from there. So, uh, bullhorning as they say. That's, yeah. Bullhorning. Yeah. That is a stout. And this one's actually pretty lower on the ABV, um, chart i was noticing 6.9 it's really good i like right. it a lot yeah, i like it as well 
So here's the. If that. Go ahead. That beer goes into the barrel at about five eight and comes out um, about in the mid sixes. No way! So. It pulls that much out of the barrel. Yeah, and the like the, well, the, the huge arcer, the huge arcer that we make um, comes out at fifteen five and it goes in at you know in in the thirteens. Is that uh, a fermentation so. thing or is it pulling it from the barrel? That's pulling it from the barrel. Wow. That's that's all the bourbon goodness that you can find in a barrel. That's wild. I want to get into that, and we will. But first, I'm going to give my. Uh, I like to bring stuff up on a podcast, as as people know that Gus doesn't know about. So I'm going to tell a story about. I went quail hunting at a place called Bray Island, and uh, our quail guide he was kind of talking, and I was and I was listening to him talking. So Gus is from Louisiana. He's Cajun. Um, and so I've been down there and met his family and I know how they talk. And so I, I kind of heard him and, and I walked up to him and I was like, Hey man, I just, I had to ask her, are you from Louisiana? And he looked me straight in the face and goes, no, thankfully it's a speech impediment. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That's so funny though. Because I just watched the news. I just watched a news article today. Um, uh, two guys in a really rural part of Louisiana uh, and they uh, thankfully helped uh, thwart uh, a kidnapping, uh, but listening to them talk, uh, their, their accent was super thick. Yeah. Uh, it, it, sometimes I forget just how, how thick that accent is down there in certain parts. So that's funny. So when I did the cheers, I said, bullhorn, is it bull? Like B-U-L-L or boom? Ball, ball hornin'. Ball hornin'. Yeah. And so that's, uh, um, that's a piece of bootling. So the, uh, Anderson Valley here has its own lingo. It's one of the three, recognized lingos in uh, the English language. One is um, Creole and another is Pigeon and another is uh, Bootling. And it's something very specific to this, this area here. And really it's, it's a um, over convoluted series of inside jokes that just kind of ran away with itself. And so ball horning means good drinking. That's what, uh, that's what I read that it was like kind of a code talk. So people didn't know what they were talking about. And then it kind of developed into its own lingo. Yeah, actually, it originally started with um, some uh, local women that were working in fields, and there was uh, a young woman from San Francisco that came up there, and they wanted to talk about her uh, in front of her. <laughs> so, uh, oh, that's so funny. They they started uh, they started the process of, of doing that, and then they went home and they told their men folk, and like good men folk, they took it to an absurd degree, <laughs> and uh, you know, a hundred something years later. Uh, they, they have a, a lingo and it's all based on like local knowledge and inside jokes. Like the name, the name for a dog is actually named after a local dog. Um, you know, huh. and there was, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, was it, uh, a Bucky Walter, um, is the name for a payphone because, you know, a Bucky or a Buckeye, um, was, you know, a nickel, um, right. according to the locals. And Walter was the name of the first guy who had a phone in the valley. <laughs> so Bucky Walter was was a uh, uh, a payphone. That's really so it's cool. like all kinds of stuff like that. And basically, it's it's an extended series of inside jokes. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Um, oh, I had something else I wanted to. So yeah, have you started? Uh, you're not gonna. I know you're not gonna try and butcher it, but have you picked anything up that you can you can understand when people talk about it? No, no, not at all. Um, <laughs> oh, <that's funny. laughs> I, I've got a, I've got a book that my wife gave me last year um, that has about 160 pages worth of like glossary, so I can interpret stuff. And so I like to say that 
you know, I've, I have a, I have a dictionary, so I know what people are saying about me. That's awesome. Um, and we've, we've put together like phrase books and stuff at the brewery and things and, um, things like that. But it's, I mean, there's only, I think there's only really two people left in the Valley that, that speak it with any kind of regularity or fluency. Other than that, it's just, it's just kind of a, it's turned into to more of an anecdote than, than an active lingo. And that, it, I bet texting killed it. And then texting, I'll probably also killed the development of future relate <laughs> really, because now you can talk shit about somebody, uh, over text. You don't have to invent a language. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, but we still, um, underneath the, uh, the bottle caps, we, a lot of times print, you know, certain phrases and, and other stuff there too. Oh, so that's good to know. Out what they mean. I haven't yeah. checked that. Oh yeah. I have to keep an eye on that. That's cool. Well, we got a bottle cap in there. I should have looked. I didn't even look. It's yeah, actually- we have a series. So we have a, a series with about 200 different, um, printed bottle caps. Huh. And if you collect them all, um, there's uh, Debbie here is the keeper of the uh, the Hall of Foam, we call it. So people that have collected them all and can prove it, uh, Debbie checks their work. And if they make it, then uh, um, they're inserted into the Hall of Foam. And actually, the w- website we have, we, we reinstituted the web page for the Hall of Foam. And uh, so certain people, certain people have gotten there. I think there's like, I don't know, maybe it's less than 100. But, does, does it tell uh, a story? Than, what do you think? No, no, it's no, just no, words. No. I mean, you can you can use it like you know throwing knuckle bones and trying to read the future if you want. But, <laughs> nice, um, nice. You know, it, it, short of that, it's not you know, it's not not going to tell you any any universal truths. Cool. I, all right. Um, I wanted to roll into the beer we're tasting. So you put them in wild turkey barrels, and this is a conversation that we've been asked by multiple people to. It, like we have hunter, we do both hunting and kind of a whiskey thing. And a lot of times hunters, the question that they always ask is, well, how do they make bourbon barrel beer? And I purposely yeah. haven't looked it up because I wanted to hear it, you know, from the horse's mouth, as they say. So yeah, most of us understand the process of making beer, but at what point does the barrel come in? So the barrel comes in after fermentation, but before carbonation. Because if you put carbonated beer in a barrel, it's going to go weird. Sure. Um so really, I mean, so so making beer, uh, it's, it, I mean, beer is 6,000 to 8,000 years older than Jesus. It's a process that's been around, you know, as long as bread. Right. And it's, it's actually pretty simple. It's, you take some malted grains, and malting is the process of, same thing with, with, with you know, making whiskey. You, you take a grain, and then you trick it into sprouting, and then you very cruelly stop the process. And what that does is it starts a chemical process in um, the the grains that develop some enzymes that you'll need later. And so what you do is you take that um, grain, you crack it open, and kind of spread it around. So it's it's almost not quite flour, but um, it gets mixed in and made into a porridge. And if you hold it at specific temperatures, it activates certain enzymes that then convert this unfermentable starches into fermentable sugars. So different enzymes activate at different temperatures, and you can kind of dial in the length of the sugar molecule that you're creating. Um, so after you do that for a little while, you drain off all of the really sugar-rich liquid, and it carries with it a bunch of flavor from the specific grains you're using. Uh, and then you put that in a boil kettle, and you boil it, which sterilizes it and also congeals a bunch of proteins and does some other good stuff. Um, boiling is when, when you're making beer, beer, um, when you're making, you know, beer for beer, not whiskey, 
um, is when you also you know would throw hops in, and that's a that's a whole different thing. But so then when you when you finished with that, um, you drain that off, and that goes into the fermenter. Cool it down so that it won't kill the yeast when you throw it in there. Throw the yeast in. Um, yeast works on it for at least two weeks or so more if you're lagering. Uh, and then after that, you basically have beer. So it's still beer, but it's done fermenting. So you've converted the start the sugars into alcohol. Now, when you're done fermenting, that's when you would put it in the barrel. So the barrel really is kind of like an after-fermentation um, flavoring component. So you, you put it in there, the pH and the alcohol in the beer, uh, in addition to just being liquid, um, helps pull out some of the flavor components that you get from a bourbon barrel or a wine barrel or any other barrel. And then it integrates into the beer. And then when you pull it out, you've now drawn out all of that, that kind of goodness. Uh, and you'll get flavors that are, you know, specific to the liquid that was stored in the barrel. So if you put it into a port barrel or a bourbon barrel or a rum barrel or, you know, whatever else, you'll really draw out some of that stuff. But then you'll also draw out components of the oak barrel or, you know, it doesn't have to be oak, um, of, of the barrel itself. And so, you know, charring the barrels and things like that end up developing vanilla and other flavors that that go into flavoring, you know, bourbon and everything else that you throw in it. And you'll still draw some of that out with um, with the beer. But because beer usually almost, you know, almost entirely is aged in barrels that have been used by some other alcohol um, product, um, you don't get as much of that early sort of, you know, first use, you know, barrel character. Whereas like with bourbon, you know, by law, you have to be using, you know, first use. Yep. Brand new charred oak know, barrels. That's part of the ABCs. Yeah, charred, yep. charred American barrels. And, and so um, you'll get a lot more of the barrel character in the bourbon, whereas with the beer, you'll get a lot more of the bourbon right. than the barrel because the bourbon's already taken a lot of that out. Now, so, one, I mean, one of the one of the byproducts is that really, I mean, what you're doing when you're bourbon barrel aging beer is you're drawing out like the legit cask strength devil's cut right. of what was in that barrel yeah. and you're integrating it into your beer. And one of the fun byproducts is that. So we get truckloads of, of barrels, you know, delivered here and um, we have to evacuate them beforehand. So we'll, we'll get them wet from the the distillery so the distillery will basically you know you know drain them put a wooden bung in them to seal them load them up and then within days they're on a truck so that they don't dry out well, by the time they come to us there's been some temperature fluctuations they're vibrating in there so yeah. it'll shake loose some of that devil's cut yeah you get some good because, stuff well we need to make sure that we're not accidentally overdosing <laughs> you know our our beer with stuff and so we have a repository of um, some of the devil's cut that's in a, a hidden secret location that lives in, a, in an extra barrel that's um, that we, we keep for a couple of reasons. The lab needs it for, you know, QC purposes and stuff like that. But um, sometimes it's kind of fun to draw on it. And uh, yeah, it's like the per it's like the le most legitimate infinity barrel. You could infinity bottle barrel you could have, like you drain out the devil's cut out of all those barrels. You should send yeah, us I, uh, a dram of that. It's kind of it's a Solera it's a Solera style Devil's exactly urban barrel. right so Solera style we just got a uh, the Hill Rock Solera um, first time playing with that it's pretty cool but yeah I have, so, a, I have a question about the so whenever you age bourbon or whiskey 
uh, people, you, you often go back and taste it throughout the process to, to make sure mm-hmm. until it gets, do you do the same thing with, with the beer or is it, is it, do you, do you have a, a set time that, you know, it just takes X amount of time, uh, or, or, or do you have to go back and taste it till it gets to that right point? And sometimes it might be four months. Sometimes it might be a year or what's, what's that process like? You know, it, it depends on the product. With the bourbon barrel age stuff that we do, we've got a pretty good process dialed in, and we've been sourcing barrels from we source our barrels from Wild Turkey. Okay, um, so we we know their wood and uh, you know the flavor components and that kind of stuff. So we've got it dialed in pretty good. We may do um, a you know intermittent sample, um, but our our aging process is six months or twelve months. Okay, um, so we're not laying things down for five years or more now with. The other side of barrel aging is with the barrel sours, which we also kind of refer to as the bugs, um, which is mm. like lactobacillus and acetobacter and and, um, and those types of things, Britannomyces. Those you have to taste uh, on a regular basis, but they also develop really slowly. So we could we could put something in, you know, a barrel souring uh, program and not pull it for you know four years or so oh wow uh and, and with those we'll we'll taste it intermittently see how it's coming along and then as it gets to maturity level and you know we we start making the call on when to evacuate the barrel and bottle it we'll taste it more regularly but like i said those things move real slowly so it's not you know it's not like like trying to ripen an avocado where right, it's yeah. like you know <laughs> 45 um, minutes later it's it's bad yeah or you have you have a you have, you have a three minute window on a, <laughs> you know Right to, to get it there. So you went so, from lawyer to legislate to li- li- uh, litigator, lawyer to litigator, to yeah. working at um, Kendall Jackson, and we'll get to that. But I wanted to bring up how our connection, how we ended up, how this podcast became possible, was that um, my mother-in-law had issues with uh, some horse law, and I guess did you wrote the the laws that had to do with that? I did, um, or I kind of wrote it in Kentucky. Uh, a little bit after the fact. So I um, actually, my, my history goes all the way back to, I was a gang prosecutor in um, Northern California wow. for a number of years. And oh, then wow. went to work as a lawyer and realized that I really kind of hated working as a lawyer. But <laughs> as, as part of my path to get out of that, um, I went to work for uh, uh, a guy named Jess Jackson, who was uh, the founder of Kendall Jackson, but also um, his, in his family office, he had a horse farm in Kentucky and, and Ocala. He had thoroughbreds, right? And, uh, yeah, thoroughbred yeah. breeding and racing. Yeah. Yep. So, but I ended up being the, the vice president running that for a while as part of the family office. And one of the things we did is, um, embarked on a campaign of, uh, uh, sales integrity and also horse welfare and trying to get, you know, kind of, um, different organizations in, in, uh, in the industry to, to buy on to, certain standards. And, uh, I wrote a package of laws in Kentucky, actually I had two packages of laws in Kentucky and then, uh, a package in, uh, in California, um, a couple other bills for a few other States. And we were able to, to arrange for a, a hearing before the house ways and means committee regarding horse welfare and its interaction with the interstate horse racing act. And this was like 2007 or eight, um, and uh, actually, it's kind of kind of neat that you know all this time later they've actually gone forward and enacted a whole bunch of the things that we were pilloried for trying to to get done back then. Now it's become kind of a mainstream uh, perspective on on what the right thing to do is. But as part of that, uh, your uh, Debbie reached out to me, you know, after reading something in an article, 
and uh, told me a story about, you know, what she went through with the J&K Club and stuff. And uh, I just did everything I could to, to try and help her, you know, get her, you know, my perspective on things. And we've kept in touch over the years. And um, it's uh, it's been an interesting ride. <laughs> but, Debbie's, uh, Debbie's such an awesome. I love Debbie. She's yeah. she's so cool. So are you going to be in her movie? Oh, I don't know. Um, I have a face for radio and podcasts, but um, <laughs> I don't know if she if she wants me to. I'd be happy to help. You should but, do it. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll send her your contact info. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but but no. See, to like the J and K club is funny. So my daughter, when my daughter was born, uh, my wife is is a horse girl, all grown up and stuff. And so she had a plan, sort of almost before conception, that if she had a daughter, that she was going to be a horse girl too. And so uh, Debbie knew about that plan. And so um, when. Uh, Scarlett was born. We got a care package from all the J and K ladies that had everything from little boots to uh, little, you know, stuffed horses and onesies, and I think there was a hat in there and all this other kinds of stuff. And nice. so my my daughter has grown up knowing about Debbie and and uh, all the J and K folks. So it's really really cool. It was really sweet of her. That's awesome. So at Kendall Jackson, you, you were there for a while, right? And you worked hand in hand with Jess on. For for years, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I think seven seven years or so. It's kind of dog years. It's one of those crazy, you know, life experiences that you know we got up to so much interesting, fun stuff that you kind of forget about things. It's like, oh yeah, I went to Dubai and we won the World Cup there, <laughs> and I'm like, I forgot about that, or or you know, just just other things that I realized that in other contexts would have been sort of career defining you know, accomplishments and stuff. And, and there it was like a Thursday. I mean, the guy was, was an unbelievable force of nature and he was a good friend too. So we, we worked uh, pretty much side by side, you know, the whole time. And, uh, the, you know, I was referred to as his consigliere a lot of times. So nice. we redid all the, the branding and, uh, business plans, marketing, strategic marketing plans for about 45 different wineries and did all kinds of other stuff. I started an olive oil company there and I started a, uh, he, he would like come into my office and say, do you like truffles? I'm like, well, yeah, sure. I like truffles. He's like, let's figure out how to grow truffles. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> I had to learn how to grow truffles. And the olive oil company came up when I got, I got to work one morning and he got there at six and put a piece of paper on my chair that said olives. And, uh, I'm like olives. He says, yeah, figure out what's going on with my olive trees and fix it. I'm like, we have olives. <laughs> so so it turns out we've got like 65 acres of really high end, you know, Tuscan olive trees, which was pretty cool. And so wow. we could figure out a way to, to make it work. So, you know, every day was different. And it was like, you know, we'd say, you know, I want a law in Kentucky that says that, you know, this, this, and this regarding, you know, sales and, and you know, and I'm like, all right, I can, I mean, when I was in the DA's office, I used to teach uh, gang prosecution law and, and do a lot of commentary and stuff. And so I knew statutory interpretation and drafting really well, because every time something new would come out, I would, you'd be asked to write a piece on how it, how it fits in with, you know, how it changes stuff or how it doesn't change stuff and, and then, you know, how to use it. So I'm like, yeah, okay, I can write a law. That's easy. You know, it's, it's the stuff after the law that's hard. So, right. um, so we did and, you know, I just would get up to stuff like that. And, um, it was pretty crazy. I mean, it was a, it was a great, it was a great time because he just, you know, he was a 70 year old self-made billionaire that had his own plane and didn't really care. So he's like, all right, I'm going to do this. And it's like, well, all right, let's, let's do it. And he just didn't, you know, there, there was no limitations on what he thought he could achieve. And, and he was right. 
So it's great to be a part of it. So is that where uh, you had experience with a cooperage? Was it was it there with the wine barrels? Yes, actually, the the, um, the company uh, had its own interest in a in a cooperage. Did you ever so get to go had, visit? Um, I didn't get a chance to go visit it. No, unfortunately. But um, what it did is, uh, you know, barrel making, and they had an interest, sort of a partnership in a French uh, barrel stave company. And then basically kind of took it over to, you know, the U.S. And just would explain it that, you know, he went to a furniture company um, and uh, taught them about making barrels. And so you know, he said, look, if you want to develop this capability, I'll partner with you and I'll be, you know, I'll be a customer sufficient enough to make sure that it covers, you know, what your expenses are and everything. And um, and then, you know, you can sell them to other people, too. But, you know, I want to develop my own my own source that I can rely on here. And if it turns into a bigger business for you, I think that would be great. And so, uh, it did. And so he had an interest in it and was able to, to kind of, um, you know, you know, help somebody become, you know, a stable source for them and also help them, you know, develop a really interesting business that's been going on for, God, it's gotta be 30, 20, 30 years or something like that. They, they've been doing it. And, Cooper's are generational and that's why I'm so intrigued by them. It's like, it's one of the last things like you hear about blacksmiths during the dark age. Like, well, my father was a blacksmith. His father was a blacksmith. Like that doesn't really yeah. exist anymore. But with Cooper, just it, it does. And and that's, I love it. There's something just so cool about generational businesses. Like not, well, not, tr- not transferring money, but actual skill, generational skill. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it's one of those things that you, you can't, at least they haven't figured out how to replicate a handmade barrel with automation right. in the same way. I mean, it's, it's one of those, there's a lot of touch and feel and there's a lot of skill and there's a lot of, you know, eyeball selecting of what stave goes where and stuff. And it's, it's a real talent. Um, and, uh, it's one of those great things that, you know, just hasn't been technologied out of people's hands and, um, you know, how to, how to go about, you know, the process of, you know, putting the hoops on and then, you know, you got to take the hoops. I mean, the, 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 the actual, you know, effort and work that goes into making a single barrel is unbelievable. And like new French oak barrels for the wine business, I mean, can cost, you know, 800 to 1500 bucks a piece. Wow. And, uh, you know, American, American oak barrels are less than that. They're down, you know, 250 to 500 or so and used barrels for beer, um, are great. I mean, they're, they're under a hundred bucks. Yeah. They're worth absolutely nothing. We, we bought, we buy a bunch of them. <laughs> so, so tell me like, you know, everything you've just explained, you know, you pick just an average person and they'd be pretty happy with that experience as a career for, for a lifetime, whether, <laughs> whether it's your, your, your part as an attorney or, or, uh, or the other stuff you talked about. So how, how did you go from that to, to where you are now with, with the brewery? Uh, so beer. So while I was working, um, with Jess, um, I had, so, so before that, I I was working, I went from the DA's office to a law firm and and that's when I realized I didn't really want to be in a law firm. Um, and, uh, I developed a number of clients that were, uh, restaurants and wineries and those were the best clients because you go visit and they would feed you. Yeah. And uh, just trying to trying to 
to spend more time with those people, you know, resulted in me learning more about, you know, wine and wine business stuff and, and those types of things. So then, you know, moving, um, moving out of that and going to work, uh, with Jess, I was already trying to make wine and, uh, the, uh, the, the process of making wine for me was a series of kind of embarrassing failures and I was never good at it and would always dump it down the toilet. It was just utter. I mean, I made some of the worst wine that anyone has ever tried to clean a trailer hitch with. So, so you, um, gave, you gave up and went with the easier thing of making beer. I did. It was my wife. My wife said, my wife said, you know, you should try beer. I mean, this was like her, not just not wanting to like have to, I'm like, here, taste this. Does this taste? It's like, and it was always awful. And, uh, so, so in a fit of sort of self, um, uh, preservation, she suggested I do something, anything different. She says, well, I want to try beers. Like my brother's made beer and you know, it's pretty good. And you could probably do that. I don't know. So, so true to form, I, I took it and I just went, you know, way overboard with it. My first batch turned out well. I really liked the process, the sort of the chemical process involved, as well as, you know, the idea that, you know, I could iterate a new beer every 21 days rather than have to, like, you know, age it for months before I realized that it was a disaster. Right. So my, my learning curve went up um, and uh, got into that. And so um, true, you know, like I said, true to form, taking it to an absurd level, I turned my garage into a commercial brewery and finally put my law degree to good use in negotiating with the local <laughs> planning department. That's right. funny. And. And uh, so in 2007, I was like one of the first, I think, two or three nano brewers. Um, eventually, they called them nano brewers and like little super tiny production. And it turned into a thing a couple of years, you know, afterwards. But I was, you know, I was making and, you know, I was delivering kegs to local, you know, bars and restaurants out of the front seat of my wow. car. Wow, out of your garage. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. So uh, we're actually, we're relaunching the brand now. So I've been able to do it. But I was running... So in in uh, beer production quantities are are defined by barrels. So a standard barrel is thirty one gallons. It's something that someone came up with, like in England in like the sixteen hundreds, and no one's bothered to change it yet. So, <laughs> so my my garage brewery had a one barrel system, and here at Anderson um, we have uh, our pilot system is an eight barrel system, and then we have two large kettles. One of them is 85 barrels and the other is a hundred barrels. So it's, it's, you know, the, the, the scale is, is crazy, but I was running a one barrel system out of my garage for 13 years, um, before, you know, finally kind of doing it here, but, um, kind of lost the track. But, uh, so I'd always, always, you know, kind of had one foot in beer and one foot in wine when I was with Jess, uh, cause I was working as a wine executive at the time. Okay. And, Part, part of that uh, you, you resulted in me, you know, getting to know, you know, local folks up here and, you know, some of the brewers up here and stuff. And so when I left uh, Kendall Jackson after Jess died, um, I did consulting work in mergers and acquisitions stuff and all sorts of kinds of things. And, you know, I would help do crisis management and help people fix businesses and um, that kind of thing. So, so I spent a bunch of time uh, already in beer. And then, so I, I focused more and more on beer. So I'd been working in beer and wine for probably 17 years or so. And then, uh, a few years ago, talking with my dad and, uh, my siblings, we, we thought about the idea of, uh, a family business, uh, something multi-generational that we could do for a long time. 
And so I thought about beer um, for, for a couple of reasons that uh, um, I can go into also. But we, uh, we looked at a number of breweries around the area and ended up having an opportunity to talk to the owners of, of Anderson at the time. And so that turned into to, to build conversation uh, in December. We ended up buying the brewery and took this on as my last job. Um, in like 20, 30 years and handed it off to my family. And we're going to keep it rolling that way. So that's awesome that you're going to keep it in the family because um, one thing that uh, what I don't recall Anderson Valley being for sale or anything, but but it's like your intentions, your background of flipping businesses and making business profitable I came into this podcast thinking like he won't be there long. He's just going to get there and make a bunch of money on it and then sell it to Budweiser, sell it to sell it overseas or something. So you, you really do intend to keep it um, family. And before you answer, I'm going to blood orange Goza. We talked um, before blood orange Goza is like my favorite Goza. So like for the second half, here's the uh, bottle pop on that. So I'm going nice. to sip on some blood orange Goza, but you, you truly intend on keeping it in the family forever. No matter what oh, the yeah, money is. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, this is, uh, you know, my, my dad is the only shareholder. Um, we don't have any investors. We're not doing any private equity, anything. I ran a private equity firm for a period of time, and it cured me of ever wanting to have private equity involved in anything that I do. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, so we're literally, you know, I'm, I, I tell people, like, when we acquired Anderson, and Anderson wasn't for sale either. Um, it was something where... Um, I reached out to a friend of mine who was an investment banker and just said, look, do you know anybody up in Anderson? Because we were looking at a couple of breweries that were sort of regional and in the area. And uh, um, uh, I knew enough about, you know, the beer industry and the people involved to be able to kind of, you know, you know, pick the areas I wanted to be involved in and look at seriously and the people that, uh, that I could reach out to and do that. Anderson actually was a bit of a a question mark because they had been very quiet for a long time. They really didn't do much of any, you know, marketing and consumer communication or anything for the last 10 years. So it was, you know, uh, you know, it was, it was a question. It was like, well, what's going on there? Who's, who's doing it and what's happening? And so it turns out a friend of mine um, knew the owner. And so we set up a lunch at that, about what I thought about about, and they had, uh, it was him and two guys that owned it, but he was the only one active and, um, and he was, you know, at the point where it was, you know, 10 years, and, um, he was getting ready to, to, to exit. And I just happened to ha- talk to him at the right time. And, and we decided to keep talking and see if we could put a deal together. And basically, uh, you know, three months later we did. So it was something that moved really quickly and they weren't for sale. They weren't, you know, you know, shopping themselves around or anything. And, uh, and the idea was that we wanted to do something for my family that, you know, we could hold on to. And I was frankly getting a little tired of doing a lot of consulting work. And I did a lot of crisis management and fixing broken stuff. And it's like, you know, it's like, well, you know, there's, this is a smoking crater. We should go this way. And, <laughs> and I had clients that are like, I kind of want to get closer to the smoking crater. I'm like, no, you don't want to go there. It's expensive. Everything's yeah. on fire. And they're like, ah. We both still kind of want to see the smoking crater. I'm like, no, maybe I, maybe this isn't the best engagement for me. The reason we keep looking at each other is because a lot of what you're saying, we're, we're like, "Ah." yeah, Matt and I both, (laughs) 
Matt, never done that. Matt and I both have some experience yeah. with uh, government customers and, and other lines of work, and it's uh, it's very similar. Uh, more to the case of they yeah. don't they don't generally come to you until there is a crisis, and it's it's uh, suddenly their emergency is is, is your problem. The crater's to fix. still on fire a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. Yeah. speaking of exactly. crater, craters on fire, um, for a lot of companies, you know, this last year with, with COVID and the pandemic, uh, unfortunately, we watched, you know, a lot of small businesses and things like that take a big hit. Uh, you know, from our standpoint and kind of being tapped into the whiskey industry, things have not really slowed down. In fact, I think folks being at home, uh, you know, a lot has has helped grow some of those things. How has what's happened in the last year uh, impacted you guys and your operations and what you're seeing from from a consumer standpoint? It's it's impacted us a lot. I mean, all of beer has been impacted, particularly craft, because craft over indexes on the the on premise. Um, yeah, you know, on and off premise. So yep. it's yeah. So that that's the big you know. Th- there's a lot written about off premise and on premise, and, and just so anybody who's listening. So what about um, draft and package? That's the main. That's my main. Yeah. So, so, so the on-premise being, you know, restaurants and bars is mostly draft, particularly for right. for craft, and then off-premise is all package, right? And off-premise is grocery stores, convenience stores, and, and that kind of thing. Play, off, the, and the terminology is off-premise means you're consuming it off of the premises that you're right. buying it. Um, so, craft, you know, was as a total category was probably eighty percent on-premise. Um, we were a little better than that just because of our size and, and stuff, but we were still about half on premise. And, you know, the, the first couple of months, I mean, that, you know, dropped, you know, 95 plus percent. Yeah. Um, and then the, the off premise for some breweries, uh, accelerated, uh, but really those were the breweries that had, you know, extensive, um, distribution chain, you know, placements like, you know, you know, the large grocery store, you know, multi-state chains and, and those types of things. But even that wasn't enough to, to really come back from what, what the on-premise stuff was and, and other things like, you know, you don't have, you know, football stadium sales and concerts and all those other kinds of stuff that like, you know, Bud Miller and Coors just kill it on that kind of stuff. All of that went away. And in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of draft that was out in the market that um, there's there's a term in beer. It's called a code date. So beer is a beer is a food. It's a perishable item. Right. It's a living thing, really. And so so there's dates that distributors are not allowed to sell beer beyond um, because you know the freshness of it will reflect poorly on on the brewery. So uh, when there's situations like you know all of a sudden you have you know on on March 16th you know, all of these bars are loaded up with like Guinness and green beer. And then there's a quarantine and everything's shut down March 17th. It's like, what the hell are we going to do with all this green beer? And it's not going to keep until, you know, whatever. So all of that. (laughs) Two weeks to slow the spread. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And so, so um, all of that basically kind of had to be written off. And so the distributors and the brewers and, uh, you know, worked together on, you know, getting, you know, credits and things like that. So they, sh- they share the cost of that for the most part. But so that was, I mean, that was just kind of slaughter. Um, and the biggest problem with craft uh, that's happened through COVID is really that anybody who's really kind of paying attention to the business models that were working well um, in, you know, 2019, what they did was they took out, you know, a whole bunch of loans at historically low rates and they opened up tap rooms 
And, you know, if you can capture you know, your retail price point of a pint of beer across the bar and you're paying manufacturing margins for costs of goods, your margin on that is over 90%. I mean, that's, uh, that's wow. where the really smart business plan is. And as soon as COVID hit, that's exactly what got torpedoed. And you had these outfits that opened up, yeah. you know, maybe five or six different locations based on, you know, direct to consumer interactions. And they took out a whole bunch of debt to fund it because that was the smart thing to do at the time. Yep. And all of a sudden they're, you know, they've got, they've got these massive amounts of, you know, of, of debt on assets that they can't put to work. And that's really, that's really kind of part of the tragedy is that, it was the people that were really paying attention to where the smart business was in craft right. that got hit super hard. Right. So and that's, and that's from, one thing you guys well, did was you made you, your doors are still closed, right? You're, you want us to buy your products from the mom and pop shops, right? We yeah, yeah we did we did a little bit of a different thing. We we're not doing um, you know any e-commerce stuff. We weren't even doing sales from the brewery until um, probably September, early October. And we kind of took the perspective that, look, we, we need, we need the, the small retailers yeah. and you know, the local folks to stay in business too. And so we had a, a sign on our tap room door that you know, pointed everybody to the local, you know, uh, the, the local retailers and did what we could to try and, try and get the point across that you know, these people have got employees and, and family and yep. we'll, you know, we'll keep – We'll keep stocking their shelves, but we'd prefer that you know you work through, you know through, through the system where you know the we've got distributors too that are you know fulfilling orders and they got families and employees and stuff and so we're we're okay with the margins we get from the business that we plan for and uh, if you can support the rest of the supply chain that that we we look at as partners too we we'd rather people did that so so we made that kind of decision and probably you know, walked away from a little bit of money here and there, but it, it seemed to be the right thing to do for us. We also, I mean, we committed early on. Um, we didn't do any layoffs. We didn't do any furloughs. Um, we committed to maintaining all of our employees at the pre-COVID uh, salary and compensation and benefits. And we've kept that up now a year later. Um, and, uh, and we we're kind of, I mean, we, we, we had a bit of a benefit in that when, when we did the transaction, we didn't take on any debt. We didn't take on any investors, like I said, and stuff. And so, you know, I like to describe, I built a moat around this brewery, like a mile deep. And if, if I had, you know, a crystal ball to see the channel COVID coming, I could not have structured our, you know, balance sheet and our financial structure better to withstand, you know, any of this. I mean, we own the property, we own the equipment. I don't have any payments, I don't have anything like that. And that that's made a huge difference and it's given us the ability to kind of, you know, weather a lot of this stuff, you know, in ways that I don't think other people really had had the opportunity to do. Um, and it was just dumb luck, really, that that we were in that position, you know, at the time it became material. Well, let me tell you, Kevin, that a lot of people that are listening know that our podcast is, is we typically try to stick to whiskey and whitetails. Like we don't we don't <laughs> want to talk about anything else. And so we preach it all the time. Like, oh, that's a cool topic, but we're not going to talk about it because it's off brand. Um, and so the people that are like devout listeners are like, well, why are you talking to a beer guy? Well, here's the reason why. Mm. The reason why is because of that right there. It's There's so many aspects about Anderson Valley and we could tie it in easily with this bourbon barrel stout. And that's the reason we did it. 
But Debbie speaks so highly of you. By the way, uh, if you saw me take a picture of you, I sent it to her and I said, uh, he wants to be in your movie. And Debbie said, it's done. You're in the movie. So you're in her movie. So, so I got that done for you. So there's one good thing for you out of this conversation. But, Sweet. I'll get, you, I'll get you the agent compensation. Oh, that would be great. For- 45%. That's it. <laughs> It's my, my, I'll get my SAG card and you get 45% That's it. of my growth. Just don't, yeah. if you go, if you go and start talking to any of the, uh, um, what are they, like the, the guilds and stuff, like where, where business is over, I'll sue you. So it's, it's just me and you. It's just me and you. <laughs> He's an attorney. No I'm not sure I'd want to sue him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get, <laughs> uh, I'll find a better, I'll find, I don't know. Anyway, so the reason that I want to do this is because she talks so highly of you and I, and I value the way, I value her opinion on everything. But after researching, because I was like, oh, thanks, Debbie. I'll look into it. So, of course, I looked into it before I reached out to you. And she it was probably two weeks before she told me to contact you, and I did. Um, and that's because I was doing a little research. And, and a lot of the stuff I wrote down, and Gus is going to cover it because it's in front of him now. But a lot of the reasons why is because this COVID thing, whatever people think about it, whatever. But as far as business goes, the fact that you were able to, as you said, build a, a moat a mile deep around your complex and you're taking care of your, of your people, you're keeping the doors shut so that, well, I mean, now they're open. I got you, but you were keeping the doors shut. So people would support local. You don't care about capitalizing on American tragedy. If that, I mean, that may be a little extreme way to say it, but, but my point is you're not in this to become like a villain that is just trying to steal from everybody. Like you guys are doing everything right, and like Anderson Valley already had like the solar panels and the windmills and and all that stuff, and it's it's just a, I want people to know that if they want to buy craft beer, especially a bourbon barrel stout, and that was delicious. I, I super enjoyed. I got another one in the fridge. I'm probably gonna pop here shortly. I just better. didn't want to do two on one podcast and be all loopy over here, but <laughs> that it's just that's the reason that we wanted to talk to you is because it's we're all about community. Like whiskey and white tells us what it's for. Like. Whiskey community is crazy. Like, you get accepted immediately. You don't know anything about it. You walk in, we're all going to teach you about it. We're going to tag you in posts and comment and like and blah, blah, blah. Same thing in the hunting community. You want to learn how to hunt? Game on. Where the beer industry is a little different because you have, like, the Budweiser's, those cores. And it's like, you could, mm-hmm. we all see it. They're just in for it for the money. That's why they sell out to other people and, and this, that, and the other thing. But I can tell if you truly are going to keep this in your family, you're truly doing all these things, it's, it's refreshing. It's like... It's like when I wake up in the morning, it's like, why am I going to keep going? Because everything sucks. Like the world's terrible, all these things. But it's like this story right here. It's like stuff like this. It's just refreshing to know. And and I think that like our fans, they can't drink whiskey all the time. They got to drink beer once in a while. So what I'm telling you is <laughs> check them out. I know that you know. And you, y'all's website revamp, ballin'. And the only question I had on the website is uh, top right corner, red button, find your beer. I can throw it. That's how I found what I'm drinking. That's how I found the, uh, I know where to find the Goza, but that's how I found the bourbon barrel stout. Where can I find that? The other one I wanted to find was the rice. Um, and I did a 50 mile search and, uh, the rice one wasn't, there was one shop and I called before I drove it because it's kind of out of the way and they were actually sold out. So my question was, how do you guys maintain the, uh, the database for, for that click here to find our beer? Like, how do you maintain that? To know that, that for um, sure they have it. Yeah. So, um, so first, thank you so much. I, I, I appreciate that. I mean, we, we are doing what we can to kind of do the right thing. I mean, this is, this is a business that I see, um, 
very literally as a reflection of of my family and like my dad and and that kind of thing and so it's it's deeply personal um and so we are you know trying to do the right thing and and thanks for thanks for the comments uh, now okay uh so the find our beer so the find our beer button links to the same sales and inventory information that we have here and so it's uploaded and is updated by the distributor in the different markets where it's there. Okay. So what it's doing is it's reflecting what our distributors see. And if it's inaccurate or it's not up to date, it means that our distributor either hasn't kind of gone to that retail um, place and updated how much is there and, and what's kind of there. What it, if, if the beer is listed at a location, it means that that location has been ordering it and right. that it should be, you know, there kind of, you know, sooner or later. Um, that's what I figured. I just wanted to clarify because I I know that because we work in IT, so we understand that. I I understand that probably an API that's doing that. that, Yeah, that I know that this store every time they sell a can Mm -hmm. of your beer, it's not immediately uploading to the cloud and your LinkedIn. I know that I knew that there was someone else doing it, and uh, and that was that answers my question. Is the distributor has to that means that that place usually gets it, so it's sold out, which is a good sign for you. Yeah, well, it's 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 good if we get it, you know more of it in there. So the black rice is an interesting beer, though. So if you can't find it, let me know. I want to try it so bad. Like of all your beer, I like a lot of them. That one and the uh, the Boonville um, ale. There's Boonville Gold. Boonville Gold, yeah, which is another one. Boonville yeah. Gold. So I'm from yeah, the- Boonville, North Carolina. So there's a there's more than one Boonville. Um, that's where I'm from. Is Boonville, North Carolina. So the Boonville yeah. Gold, like none of my family drinks. They're all super. Uh, anti-alcohol but i would like to get a boonville gold as well the boonville gold and the uh the black rice i think the black rice just sounds cool is it super sweet no um it's actually it tastes um god it's its own kind of thing uh so so foul was cooking with it and then decided it's like um uh, foul's our brewmaster oh. um and he's been here for more than 20 years i mean actually our average you know uh, you know, tenure of employees here is like 15 to almost 20. Wow. Years. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's a good place to and, work. Uh, yeah. And when, when we, and, and they're all, you know, I mean, obviously we kept everybody when, when we got everything done, it was like, that was, that was one of the big selling points was that the people that were here were really invested in it. It's like a real family. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's it. And so how can I not respect that? Too, yeah. You know? That's like, awesome. Good on you, man. Like, but, uh, but so, um, so Fal was cooking with it and then decided he thought, I was like, what would this be like with the beer? And so he put together something and it's, it's surprise. So when you look at the package, the package is super cool. It's like black, it's got Asian writing on it and stuff like that, but right. it doesn't taste anything like the package. I mean, the beer is really good <laughs> and the package is really cool, but the, pa- but the beer doesn't taste anything like the package, which became a problem. And we're fixing that. We're I'm actually in the process of redoing all of the branding and, and, and all that stuff. And we're just about done with that. Um, but, uh, so it's really, it, it kind of tastes like a, a brown ale a little bit but it's a little different. It's almost kind of like, it's not quite the roastiness of a stout. It's not quite, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the earthiness of a, of a brown ale. There's a, there's a little bit of kind of umami flavor, a little, you know, it doesn't taste like soy sauce, but it's got some of that savory component in it. And it's, it's light bodied. It's only 90 calories, um, which is another great thing. It's like, it's basically, it's a Michelob ultra that tastes like a really good beer. (laughs) Um, and, and because of that, you know, it's like something that it it never really got a good shot, you know, when it was initially, 
um, launched. And so we've been planning on kind of relaunching it and, and, uh, and getting it out there. We've gotten really some, some really good, um, response. Um, I was told USA Today and even Rolling Stone were going to recommend it as like a low calorie winter nice. ale alternative. Wow. Awesome. Um, and then, you know, so, so, I mean, if, if I was going to change the name to something other than black rice ale, but now, I mean, if, if USA Today is going to recommend yeah, it. Yeah. Kind of so are, are you taking the, the kanji? Is it kanji? Is that the form of writing? The Japanese, uh, Asian form of writing? Is that called kanji? I think. K kanji. Is, yeah. Yeah. Are you taking that off the bottle, the can? We haven't really decided yet. Well, I want an OG so, can with the, with the kanji still on it. And then I'd, oh, I'd yeah. like the new can. That would be cool to have a side by side. And send me like okay. two of each because I'll drink one and then and then like uh, hoard the other one. Okay. On my so, library. So so you mentioned that you're you're redoing some branding. Are you getting rid of the uh, the bear with the God, with I hope the not. antlers? Because that's I hope not. no no. In fact, um, I can give you guys a if if anything. Well, I mean, not if anything. We're actually going super deep with the antlered bear. Hell you yeah! The, you can see the camera. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's oh, a boon! Awesome, like a boon. Is that like a Boone and Crockett play? Is that what that is? That's no, our our amber, which is our flagship. Oh yeah, I got that is, sitting uh, right. Yep, sorry. Is boon amber? So, ah, but yeah, no, we're excellent. going super deep into the into the antlered bear. So, and, what does boon uh, mean? Boon uh, is a reference to Boonville. Oh, okay, because you know Boone and yeah. Crockett's like how you score like big bucks. Oh yeah. Yeah, so Boone, you could have a, you should play on yeah, it. Yeah, there's a Boone and Crockett club, and it's like a. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know what? Yeah, so I, I do. I do know that, and you know how I know that is that we're looking at all the old packaging and some of the other stuff. We're looking at the antlers, and I'm like, those antlers don't make friggin' sense. And so <laughs> we did. Uh, we went through and did a bunch of research and figured out, you know, the species of bear um, that, that grows antlers was on the California bear flag. Nice. Um, which is which is the California grizzly, which is unfortunately extinct. Extinct but, animal. Um, yep. Yeah, they killed them all. And bastards. Yeah. And then we uh, we did a bunch of research about the indigenous deer that are in the area too, because the idea of the, I mean, it's the the whole thing is it's the legendary Boonville beer, and beer being you know the the liquid we make here, but also the old joke about what do you get when you cross a bear and a deer? Right. You know, you get a beer. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, so since 87, they've been putting this, this beer, I, I call it a bear because if I refer to it as a beer here in this building, no one knows what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> so, um, so we, we made a point of trying to figure out, okay, well, what's, what's the indigenous, you know, and it's the, the, the Columbia, um, blacktail. And so we went through and actually the Boone and Crockett website was a lot of the source material we used. And we did a super deep dive into antlers because there's a lot of hunters out here too. And we know that, they uh, would know if we got the antlers wrong. Yeah. Right now, like if you look at, so if you, you pick up the Goza, um, yeah. the, those, those antlers don't don't exist in nature and they like, they're coming out of the back of his skull. Kind yeah, of so it's four on each side, which is uh, which would make it an eight point, but we know they have those G1, so it'd make it a 10 point, but you got these two little kickers on here. But the thing about the kickers is they only count as points if you can hang a ring on it. So your little two mm-hmm. kickers there, they don't really count. So it's it's a waste of space. It should have just been a yep. straight. But as far as the antlers go, that looks like a symmetrical deer that you would see in the wild. Just those those little kickers on the, in between. Right. But to, to I think two I think tines. to his point, I think to Kevin's point is that in California they have 
Yeah, uh, right. Mule, I, mule deer, right. and I think blacktail deer. Yeah, black deer. Yeah, yeah, I get you. So they're going to be a little smaller. Be and then the, the mule, the mule yep. deer will have a different. And these look like whitetail antlers, as yeah. opposed to. That's cool. Like, though, that you guys have taken that much care to, because most people just you know, even in movies, right? Million and millions and millions of dollar production uh, and budget for a movie, and you know, a hunting uh, a movie that takes place in a particular part of the country. You know, we'll have a hunting scene, and they'll have a an animal, and yeah, that scene that exist. doesn't exist in that yeah. part of the country. It drives me nuts. <laughs> well, let me show you this picture of uh, this is something I I drew, and I won't say what I drew it on just because I don't want people to get mad at me. It's not That's as right. bad as anyone would think. It's it's you know, don't worry about it. It's not that big of a deal. But I want to sh- you'll, you'll appreciate it. And so this was from our Colorado elk trip. Um, this is boredom at its finest. So, Two years ago, right? You see what it nice. is? Nice. Yeah, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah, so, so, so yeah, that's, that's awesome. It's like a cave drawing. Of yeah, a, yeah, of yeah, a, yeah, yeah. I'll send it to you so you have it. <laughs> oh, it's cool. But yeah, no, I'll send you. Uh, I'll send you the the drawings that we did. You guys can can break down. Uh, um, you know what it is and the points and the, and that kind cool. of thing too. So. Oh yeah, we would love to consult for you for free. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we charge forty five dollars an hour. I'm just kidding. It's a hundred, but we'll do. I'll it. send you beer. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely consult and for beer. Yeah, deal. beer and whiskey, I will consult for free. <laughs> um, well, we also found, um, so in the back, so we have, so up here at, at, in Boonville, we've got a piece of property, it's almost 30 acres, and uh, uh, it's got you know, about five different buildings on it, and in the back of one of the buildings in a wood crate was an old still. So it's oh, awesome. We, I pulled it out, and uh, one of our one of our brewers has got some uh, distillation in his background, so we're going to start doing some some test uh, test batches with some water and see uh, um, see what we can uh, what sort of trouble we can get in with that thing and figure out the licensing and stuff too. So that should awesome. be fun. So two things on that. One, I'm going to steal Gus's next question, but first, um, we have been approached by several distilleries about kind of doing stuff. But our problem is we want to believe in the products. We don't. We're not sellouts. We don't want to be, and we're not going to be. So. If you guys start distilling stuff and you need people, like we will fly out there and do some samplings and <laughs> tastings and kind of talk to you about our knowledge. I know that you're very knowledgeable. I'm not saying I can teach you anything. I'm just saying um, we teach whiskey classes and have pretty in-depth knowledge. And um, a lot of them are tastings that we do. And uh, I know yeah. the science behind tastings and how to trick people, like the old snake oil tricks about how to trick people into liking stuff. Um, like I know all those tricks. And uh, I'm getting ready to take my uh, certified bourbon steward um exam mm-hmm. probably in the next couple of weeks and then i'm as soon as sommelier school opens up i'm going to that and um this time next year i'll be pretty qualified to at least uh pretend like i know what i'm doing but yeah, we would love either. to work with you on some stuff if that's um if you just want to like just have a, a unsolicited because i'm not going to lie to you i'll just tell you yes or no so the other thing was the water that you guys are using so i know you have 40 percent of your property is um powered by solar panels you guys have windmills i I said that earlier but i saw something that said you have a zero percent water use or water um it's a we we kind of refer to it as a zero impact yeah that's um that i want you to explain that sure because water is huge in whiskey so i i I imagine it's huge in beer as well yeah no totally and first of all absolutely we start distilling stuff you i would would love to have you guys come out and give us your impression i think i I'm one of those people that I want to hear from everybody because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm at least smart enough to know that I'm dumb in most things. Oh no, so, you're, you're not, you're, just, you have a law degree. You're supposed to be the smartest guy on the planet. Is it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, or at least fake um, it till you make it. You know, you know, you know. I think that you're probably good in a meeting where you have no idea what you're talking about. I think you're one of those people that you can make it through the meeting and look smart. You know, I'm not smart enough to figure out the cat filter on my. Thing, so. <laughs> did you see what he's talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so yeah. funny. Yeah, that's relevant. So, so with the water, um, so the water, so we, we, we have a kind of a philosophy we're trying to get our arms around and we try to, we're, we think about it as sort of a leave no trace, you know, sustainability philosophy. A big part of it is the water. Uh, but then there's also solar and, and or CO2, um, and then, you know, waste handling and things like that. And so, um, like with the, you know, our, all of our spent grains that go to feed, you know, local livestock, um, and, you know, most of our spent yeast goes there too. Um, our, we've been solar for about 20 years. This year, we're going to expand our solar um, to cover more than 100% of our usage so that we can sell back some stuff to the grid and then also be able to island ourselves. So there's a power outage. We're, we're set up to, uh, to be a community resource center. So if the power goes out, um, PG&E out here will set up, uh, you know, support services. We've, we've agreed with them that they can use part of our property to do that. So, you know, people can awesome. come and charge their cell phones and get some Wi-Fi and, and all yeah, that kind of stuff. It's great. So the, um, uh, the, the water side of things, we source all of our water from 10 wells on our property here. And, uh, it's actually really interesting water chemistry wise for produce, production of beer. Water is really kind of an under, represented factor when you know it used to be you know like you know cores was all about you know water source and things yeah tap you know, the rockies then, yeah <laughs> so everyone started reverse osmosing you know water but you know you have you know the history of certain beers are you know from what their water source was so like pilsner you know in, in pilsen really soft water very specific you know works really well with uh you know making you know these you know soft delicious lagers um, you know, Burton on Trent is where IPAs came from, different components in the water and mineral content really highlighted, you know, hop flavors and stuff. Uh, Dublin, Dublin had, you know, I think it was high bicarbonates, which really worked well with, um, uh, you know, roasted grains. And so, you know, start really, stout really worked well there. So, so we have, um, you know, a specific kind of water, you know, profile here that works really well with soft beers and, and, and really well with highly roasted grains and stuff too. Um, and so we, we take it, you know, from the wells, um, use it in the process here. We have on-site, uh, water treatment facilities. Uh, so basically some settlement ponds and some other pumping and handling stuff. And so we treat it on-site here and then we return it to the water table and we pump it into, uh, you know, basically a, a leach field that a bunch of goats are living on and, uh, <laughs> the goats get happy because they, uh, they get to eat the grass and, goes back down into uh, into the water table and we, we use it all over again. So we operate um, completely independent of the outside uh, water resources and table. And so we're totally self-contained in terms of our water usage, which is crazy when you think about how much water sometimes it takes to make beer or yeah. whiskey or really kind of anything. Yeah, that's, that, so, that, that's, that's very impressive. What's the type of water that's there? Is it, um, like, is it spring or is it running in from somewhere else? Because I know California is not a super plentiful in water. I just wonder where your water comes from. Uh, it's just the water table. So we're in, uh, we're in a valley. So there's yeah, it's just groundwater and everything else. So it's all groundwater. So That's it's, cool. um, like I said, it's 10 wells that, uh, that we run intermittently. 
So we've got a, you know cisterns and and water storage stuff. So we could bank it. And you did we say to run the wells all the time and let you, stuff recharge. You did say wells. My bad. I was God, actually <laughs> sending you a text message when you said that. <laughs> so cool. Um, what was the next? Um, he's got the thing. Oh. oh, the very last one, I think. So the so we've talked a lot about where you've been where you've gone, where you are now, where Anderson Valley has been, brewing, where they've been, where they have come from, and where they are now. What what do you see as not necessarily the future of the beer, but the future of the company? Where do you see the future of the company moving? Um, like you said, you're not getting out of the family. It's staying with you. So what's your right. what's your long game? Like what do you want your grand your great-grandkids to be doing at Anderson Valley 80 years from now? Um, you know, we'll... Well, first of all, we'll, we'll still be making a lot of the beers that we currently make. I mean, the the um, the history of the brewery and the thing that, that really you know made it something that I was interested in when we were looking at it is that it's never made a bad beer. No, the nice thing, the nice thing about the, you know, it's it's like the and and I you know now I need to not screw that up. Um, but uh, you know the, the the big issue with Anderson was that it just wasn't kind of communicating. It wasn't marketing. It wasn't you know doing all the things that normal consumer products companies kind of need to do to, to stay, you know, relevant and top of mind when, when someone is looking to buy a beer and, and, and you want them to choose yours. Um, all of the fundamentals and, and everything, the really hard stuff was in place. So, um, I mean, we'll continue to make really good beer. Um, we'll, there's possibility we may take on, you know, some other breweries or other brands as we, we get, you know, involved kind of down the road, you know, years go, years go by. Um, my family will still be involved. Um, we'll probably, you know, have more of a presence on the East Coast than we have right now. We really needed to retrench and and reestablish ourselves in our home markets. Uh, so, you know, that that's first of all important. But my family's from Buffalo, and you know, that's uh, we consider that to be part of our home market. And so, I don't want to expand capacity here because this place is kind of special and it's its own thing, and kind of blowing out. You know, the amount of beer that we can make here might stress, you know, our water source and that. And if we do that, it changes the beer. So right. um, we would we would probably rather than expand here beyond, you know, what we've got. Uh, and we've got a lot of headroom to expand into. Um, we would, uh, you know, open up a facility on the East Coast, probably in Buffalo, close to where my dad lives and, and my sister is and um, and uh, and kind of run it from there. So well, Charleston has um, a wonderfully accessible water table. I was going to say, ever. unlike yeah. whiskey, uh, <laughs> uh, temperature doesn't matter as much. That's probably why you can go to Buffalo. Yeah, because like for whiskey, temperature matters. Like to have a to age whiskey in Buffalo would take you forever. And that's one thing to consider um, as you move into kind of the whiskey realm of things and distilling stuff is it, it takes a long time to make it and aging it in a colder or a climate that doesn't change. Those barrels need to breathe. They got to be hot in the summer and cold in the winter. And um, a lot of times the reason that Texas does so well with uh, whiskey and bourbon is because it's hot in the day, hot in the day, and it's cold at night. And Kentucky, the reason that it kind of started there is because they have real climate where a lot of places don't. So they have a warm summer and a very cold winter. It's snowing in, in Louisville right now. So it's... One thing to take into consideration is like uh, I I've been to California several times. The climate is like within ten to twenty degrees year round. Right? I don't know about exactly in the valley, but at most places it's pretty simple yeah. temperature. So you'd have a hard it time gets, aging whiskey in 
that environment. Yeah, it gets it gets colder here. I mean, like we do all of our barrel, so our bourbon barrel aging stuff goes into refrigerated storage. So we we, sure, we yeah. age it cold. Yeah, for oh, okay. consistency. I mean, in terms yeah. of like long term, um, I just meant for whiskey. Get, yeah, you can still get fluctuations, and you'll get you know the the barrels start flexing on you you know in the course of the year, but it's not going to be like Texas Hill Country or like like Garrison Brothers or you know like like that kind of stuff where yeah, you, know, you can get. You can get a lot of you can get a lot of a lot of you know activity going on you know just because of you know where you are right. Um, That's wild. You mentioned Garrison Brothers. That was our, our last podcast was powered by Garrison Brothers oh, no Cowboy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We uh, we drank their uh, their Cowboy. Their Cowboy, the one with the big purple heart gold medal on the front of it. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, those guys. So um, Garrison Brothers. First of all, Garrison, it's awesome stuff. I've been able to get my hands on a bit from time to time, but. When I was working with Jess, one of the things that I did was um, I was his gatekeeper for different business plans and stuff. He got a lot of outreach from people looking to fundraise for, awesome. for sure. new business ventures. Yeah. So uh, after a period of time, he just said, send them all to Kevin. And, and you know, he told <laughs> me, just you know, give me the interesting ones. And throughout the entire time, I think I showed him two uh, business plans. And one of them was Garrison Brothers. And um, really saw it, was really interested in it and stuff. I got on the phone to talk to the guys, you know, for a while and stuff. And, and turns out just didn't have the appetite for it, but it was something I never forgot. I was like, what these guys are doing is really smart. It is. And they're going to make some good stuff. Yeah. And, uh, so just always kept an eyeball on them. They yeah. were saying that uh-huh. one year of aging and, and their facility is, was, I think it was three years in Kentucky. So they can create yeah. a five year. So what we had was a five year bourbon, that five year uh-huh. bourbon tasted mouthfeel the legs in the glass the oily mouth everything the finish all of it it tasted like a 10 11 year old kentucky and so like i don't know about beer aging but i assume there's a too short and too long and so for whiskey for us both i'm not and people will be like that's not true it's it's not true it's just (laughs) everybody's different right so for gus and i both about 10 years is the mark in kentucky so a 10-year bourbon, if, once it gets past 10, it gets very tan and it reminds me of wine. And I'm not mm-hmm. a huge wine person. So the Kendall Jackson, that Pinot, amazing stuff. But like outside of that, like some Cabernets, I'll just do a house Cabernet with dinner or whatever. But the actual taste and mouthfeel of five years in Texas compared to 10 years in Kentucky was yeah. very, very, very similar. Yeah, very and to much. be able to create a Pappy-style drink in five years in Texas, that's... They're sitting on something. I don't know what they have to do, and that maybe they should call you. I know you're busy now, but uh, as far as rebranding and trying to figure, like they should be, that should be the first thing on their label. Is this is only five years old, but one yeah. year in Texas is two years in Kentucky, so this is technically a ten plus year. Bur- I mean, I don't know. Living in this industry with the whiskey, it's it's the marketing side of it is so cool because they're all lying. Every single one of them is lying, and they're allowed to like. <laughs> Elijah Craig says they're the father of bourbon. They're the ones that created bourbon because Elijah Craig was a traveling preacher and he stored like fish and and like clams and shit in a, in a barrel. And so he wanted to start making whiskey. So he used fire to burn the insides to clean the fishy smell out and started making mm-hmm. whiskey. And that's how bourbon was invented. It's a lie. That's not a true story. <laughs> all those stories are lies. They're all lies. They're all unfounded. Like bullet bourbon. It's the whiskey of the frontier. That's a, If you were in the frontier, you were drinking bullet bourbon. And if you look at their label, that's what it says. We were born on the frontier. 
they were made and <laughs> they were founded in 1985. So they, they clearly were not on the frontier. But yeah. marketing was important to us at some of our past companies and other things we've done with people. But it wasn't until we got, we've always been into like the bourbon and, and kind of what we're doing now. But until we got really deep into it and we realized that the industry is built on marketing and there's mm-hmm. story after story after story of brands that were just meh, but they market correctly and they explode. And and one of the biggest ones was Smoke Wagon. Smoke Wagon is, is a Nevada distillery guy. Just, he makes some stuff, throws them in a barrel those I'm gonna, and he's like, you know, but he started doing YouTube videos. He only made like four. That's how fast this blew up. But the secondary market clung to it. And they were like, this is rare stuff. This is really good. And it built him. And so now you can't even find this stuff in the store because it sells out so quick. But what's $80 in the store is $250 on the secondary market. I mean, it's impossible to find it because the story's cool. And you guys, Anderson Valley has a cool story. So if you were to get into bourbon, the story, we could help you write it, but your story <laughs> would be awesome, especially like in the beginning, because every you're gonna have to sell white dog in the beginning. You're gonna have to sell lowly aged in the beginning. Cause it's yeah. gonna take you seven, eight years, depending on where you store your barrels. But I mean you could even do it there in a facility that you climate control where you pump up the heat and then cool it down at night. Those barrels have to expand. They have to breathe. They gotta suck air in and blow air out. And depending on where you do it at, it depends on how long it's gonna take you to make a quality aged bourbon. But your white dog could be sold. I'm a huge fan of white dog. I grew up on Moonshine. I like it. It's one of my favorite things. Assuming he wants to make bourbon. Maybe he no, wants he, to make a single malt. No, that's what he said. They were looking at distilling. Oh, okay. Unless you were talking about vodka. You said you were going to distill. Oh, no. I'd be doing – no, I'd be doing I'd be doing brown liquors. I mean, that's the, – the, yeah. What you're saying about – you know, so I, I killed the idea of a vodka project back, <laughs> Thank back you. in the day. Thank you. Yes. So Cheers the, to that. Uh, <laughs> The idea was so that uh, in order to make consistent alcohol levels with enormous amounts of wine, you have to dealkalize some of it and kind of blend it back. And Correct. So working with the dealkalization company, they would be paid by the gallon and they keep the spirit. So one of the ideas was, well, why don't we keep the spirit, distill it, and then turn it into vodka? And uh, so I spent a bunch of time learning that business and process and stuff like that and uh, um, and killed the idea for, for two reasons. First is that the vodka that – um, the winemakers were making just wasn't as good as the category they wanted to play in. So that was, that was one thing, but it was a little indelicate to try and get that across. Um, but the, the, the main reason was that, um, marketing spirits, vodka in particular is so, uh, you know, advertising image, yeah, it's a club uh, drink heavy. Yep. And like, like vodka in particular is like, it's like marketing perfume. Yeah, it's, there's, it. there's nothing intrinsic about the product. Right. It's like you just you find something cool that you think is cool, and you're like, "We're that." Yeah, like and then I said, you find a whole bunch of you know like stock <laughs> photography and stuff. Yep, that's and you're exactly like, hey, look, it. We're this. It's a club drink. You just, we you drink this at parties yeah. and clubs. It's it's not that's not American. If yeah. if you were to develop a whiskey and and you wanted any kind of advice, like I know you're smart, and I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but I'm just telling you for us, the guys that are in it, high proof, so cast strength. Single barrel, use you mm-hmm. legally operate within the terms of bourbon, cast strength, single barrel at a reasonable price. You will sell that's what everybody wants because you can't get the stuff that like Blanton's. We hate it, it's like I don't even want to talk about it, don't care. It's like the things that we like is this is the stuff that is hard to get, they only make it once a year or whatever. 
But if you were to develop, it would take you, I mean, the laws of ABC's bourbon, it would take you a while to create a bourbon. But if you could develop a bourbon, cast strength, single barrel, it would sell like, it would sell like crazy. It would sell like crazy. Just something to keep in mind. Yeah. That's about where we'd go, actually. All right, man. We appreciate all of your time. And I know we ran over and, uh, but thank you so much. This has been a great podcast. Gus, do you have anything final? No, thank you for uh, th- thank you for your time. I uh, I know as I'm talking right now, I got to lean over and you can't see my face on the screen because of the way my microphone's <laughs> set up. But thank you so much for your time and uh, and all the insight. I, I I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. We appreciate it, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on, and uh, I'll keep in touch. Absolutely, we'll do something soon. I'm sure. Cool. Appreciate it. Cheers, brother. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.